creative collisions with Second Home. Empathy, being able to put yourself in someone else's shoes, is part of being human. But what role does empathy play in the creative process? And can arts and culture help promote empathy? Hi there, I'm Rohan Silver. Welcome to Creative Collisions, the podcast where we celebrate creative diversity, bringing you conversations with great talents from different industries, direct from Second Home. Today we'll be hearing from the former chairman of Arts Council England and former television executive Peter Bazalgette. He's also the guy who helped create Big Brother TV show. Peter joined us at Second Home to discuss his important book, The Empathy Instinct, which is an exploration into this complex emotion, looking at how we can build a more civil society. Art's been described as a bridge between one mind and another, an essential tool with which people create and exchange meaning. And it often involves us trying to understand what it's like to be someone else, whether that be from another cultural sphere or even from a different time, a different century altogether. As Peter Bazalgette himself says, arts and culture, at their core, are a telling of stories about the human condition, and they rely on and feed our basic instinct for empathy. So what makes a successful TV executive like Peter embark on this journey into empathy in the first place? I was chair of the Arts Council for four years. My job, amongst other things, was to argue with the Chancellor about arts funding. And of course, this was post-2010 in the credit crunch when any party that had been in power would have cut government expenditure and the arts were no exception, they were cut. Uh, But after that, we had to argue or retrench or say, don't cut us any further, we play an important role in society. And I tried to galvanise, and I wasn't the only one, I'm not pretending I did this on my own, people in the arts and cultural community to speak with one voice and to get all the arguments together about what the social benefit of public investment in arts and culture is, not just to make one of the arguments. And in that rainbow of social benefits, educational benefits, economic benefits, was what I call intrinsic benefits. I wanted to define all the different reasons for funding the arts, and it was the pro-social way that the arts tell stories and help us understand other people. So that's point number one. Point number two was I was asked by the same government to chair something called the Holocaust Memorial Foundation to build a new Holocaust memorial in central London, which we've made great progress on, and we hope that will be constructed sometime in the next four or five years. So the survivors of the camps who live in Britain are 88, 89, 93, 94. They go around schools talking. They are the last primary witnesses of the murder of six million people in 20th century Germany. And they're all going to be dead within a decade. And so the question from David Cameron was, how are we going to preserve and educate that memory, which, of course isn't just about the Jews. As the chief rabbi himself said to me not long ago, this will be for the Jews, but it's not just for the Jews because it's about tribalism and what happens when a society, a civil society is subverted and the organs of it and medicine and the courts are subverted and everything else. But more particularly, what I got to ask myself when I was talking to these survivors, what happened in Germany when they apparently switched off their empathy for one group of the country? 
and how were they persuaded to do that? And there are, of course, stories in Germany and Poland, stories in Armenia, a lesser-known genocide, and stories in Rwanda where people died because they said, I will have empathy for people outside my tribe, and this is not acceptable, and I must stand up to it, and I must hide people, and I must protect people. So when you think about this, I think it's really interesting that at a time when we're more connected digitally than ever, it often appears that empathy may be in chronically short supply. And, you know, when you look to world leaders like President Trump, who are always connected, always on Twitter, but also seem to be extremely successful despite their apparent and brazen lack of empathy. Donald Trump's a really interesting person, isn't he? Because he's probably, and I'm not a professional psychologist, but he's probably a narcissist. And he's a suitable case for treatment because he probably has almost zero empathy, which means he's not able, if I can do a very simple definition Mm. of empathy, he's not able to put himself in other people's shoes. Though curiously, he has the characteristics of some narcissists, which is that they have one part of empathy, but not the other part. And so cognitive empathy is absolutely understanding how other people tick, are being very perceptive in that sense. And look at the way Trump gets his supporters together. Look at the way he manages to touch their resentment at those rallies and all through the presidential campaign. But the other part of empathy, the affective or emotional empathy, as it's called, is can you feel other people's emotions? So to give you an extreme example, Iago in Othello who is a pretty good working definition of a psychopath, who causes trouble almost without knowing why, he has got brilliant cognitive empathy. He plays Othello like a fiddle. And at the end, when there's three bodies lying on, you know, Othello, Desdemona, lying on the ground, Iago's standing there and looking at these bodies with, frankly, almost incomprehension. He Mm. didn't know how they'd got to where they'd got to or why those bodies were on the ground or what it had to do with him. In the last 25 years, we've learnt more about the human brain than we have in the last two millennia. And we've done it because of the MRI scanner, which I talk about in the book. And we've begun to understand which bits of the brain are working and aren't working when we do horrible things to each other, or which bits of the brain are working or not working when we're nice to each other. And of course, it's by being sympathetic to each other that civil society works. What I think is fascinating about Peter's book is that it highlights how we're still discovering aspects of how our brains work and so it really helps us understand ourselves and each other a bit better it's also really clear i think that when you're reading the empathy instinct peter really did his homework the book is peppered with different scientific studies from neuroscience psychology even primatology so there's a primatologist who's dutch by origin but works in america called franz de Waal, and he wrote a book called the age of empathy And it's what he learned from primates. But also, to some extent, he quotes examples from other higher beings like dolphins and like elephants and so on. And they all, of course, have elements of empathy. There's the idea of the sense of self. So there's these marvellous experiments where they paint a white cross on the face of uh, dolphins or elephants and present them with mirrors And if they notice there's a white cross on their forehead, they have a sense of themselves. And then if you have a sense of yourself, you have a sense of other people. And of course, that's part of the process of 
being a toddler and growing up, and that's all in the science of child development. So empathy is a wonderful thing, and it's, if I can put it, part of the solution, but it's also part of the problem. This is what Franz Duval says. We've evolved to hate our enemies, to ignore people we barely know, and to distrust anybody who doesn't look like us. Even if we're largely cooperative within our communities, we become almost a different animal in our treatment of strangers. So what he's actually putting forward the idea is that empathy is the possible basis of racism, that we are all born with the innate instinct to be loyal to people within our own tribe. Now, that might be people of the same colour. It might be people in the same district. It might be football fans. And, of course, we're fluid. We are in one tribe one moment, another tribe the next. So my own personal belief is we can never tackle racism unless we admit that we have racist instincts. Why are you ultimately an optimist about our ability to work through this? Because the world has become a global and international place, because despite everything we hear, we have to cooperate with other countries, we have to work with other countries, and we have to trade with other countries. And the digital world, on top of that, connects us. I'll come to the downside of the digital world, yeah. but it connects us with all these different people. So, yes, I'm positive, but one of the things I'm most worried about today are Google and Facebook, who have brought us many benefits huge benefits. But here's what I'm worried about. Their algorithms are designed to give us what they think we like and to get us, connect us to people they think we agree with. But civil society cannot function if you're only talking to people you agree with, as we discovered from the referendum. And so I think something is developing in social media that's profoundly anti-society and anti-civil society and anti-empathetic. What we have to recognise is that the technology that now is part of our life wasn't with us 20, 25 years ago. It's changed us forever. We're online 30% of the time. Therefore, it is part of society. And therefore, we say, well, how do you make society work? And what effect is it having? So we have to learn this. I think it's really tough, oftentimes, to be open to ideas and people from completely different backgrounds and different industries. If we want to keep driving forward creativity, we have to break out of those echo chambers, as difficult sometimes as that is. Empathy could be a bit of a daunting topic to talk about because we're only human, none of us is perfect, and there's always examples where you think back and you think, wow, I could have done more or I could have done something to help and, you know, and and I didn't do enough. In a way... Understanding our brains is also an understanding of the limitations of our brains. And in this time of social justice and political upheaval, a lot of us, I think, can probably relate to this awful feeling described as burnout. Burnout, that's fascinating. You see, if you're over-empathetic, you haven't any reserves of sympathy left. So, like, you watch the news every night and one disaster after another, and in the end, you're burnt out. In terms of our everyday life, you walk out of here, walk to the tube station at Holland Park, you pass, and you probably will, I'm afraid, pass somebody begging on the street. So what about you get your checkbook out or your credit card or go to the bank immediately or phone your phone bank or whatever it is and get all the money you own and sell your flat, if you own a flat, and give it to them? And the next day, you will be sitting in their place on the street, destitute. And that's a sort of obvious point, but it says we apply common sense, don't we? We do good, 
but we also have to look after ourselves. And what use are we to others if we ourselves are in a terrible state? So you have to apply other things other than empathy to the way you conduct yourself. There is a chapter about empathy in health because the evidence is that people who are treated by nurses and doctors who show empathy to them get better sooner. There's plenty of evidence for that. But here, here's a point. If you're a doctor or a nurse faced by a cancer patient, and every time you're faced by a cancer patient who is about to die or probably going to die, you burst into tears, what bloody use are you as a nurse or a doctor? On the other hand, if you show no empathy whatsoever, what bloody use are you as a nurse or a doctor? So there is an incredibly subtle interplay. If you show too much empathy, you get burnout. Now, one of the problems with doctors is that they start idealistically in their first posting They want to be nice to everybody. And, of course, they get burnt out because they can't function like that. You can't can't go overboard. So you've got to have a a certain amount of it, but not so much of it that you can't function. So Mm -hmm. you have to, therefore, almost consciously control your empathy instinct uh, to be an effective doctor. Makes me think as well of uh, another section of the book, which is on nature and nurture and empathy. The extent to which empathy can be inherited, and the extent to which, you know, nurture plays a role. Okay, so, you know, there's the age-old debate between nature and nurture, and it's a completely fruitless and stupid debate because the answer is both, and stop buggering about, you know? (laughs) Um, But let me just give you this wonderful bloke called James Fallon, who's an American neuroscientist, okay? And he was doing some work on serial killers and psychopaths, and this is all to do with MRI scans of the brain, the point I was making earlier. So what he did was he did a control scan of himself and some members of his family. So he had what, you know, in science experiment, you always need a control against the cohort you're examining. Let me read a bit. Of all the scans he was looking at, brothers, aunts, and the convicted murderers in the study, his own stood out as the classic psychopath. This is James Fallon. He found he had several high-risk gene variants, which passed down from parents to children, for aggression and low empathy. When he shook his family tree, no fewer than seven murder suspects fell out, including the famous Lizzie Borden. Anybody heard of Lizzie Borden? She was a famous axe murderer. The famous rhyme about Lizzie Borden was, Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave her mother 40 wax. When she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. She murdered her parents. She was found not guilty, but in the era of DNA and uh, genetic testing and forensic, she would have been found guilty. She probably been brutalised by her parents, and that's probably why she murdered them. So there's your nature bit. You can be born with a propensity to it. Sometimes autism, which is not the same as being a psychopathic murderer, it's a different thing, but sometimes autism runs in families Mm. between generations. You can be born with it. But nurture... The most formative period of your brain developing is the first two and a half years of your life. If you are brutalised in that time, you have post-traumatic stress, effectively. And the right bits of your brain that should have developed haven't developed. Mm. And you're, you could be turned into an automaton. Classic case, the Romanian orphans. The menstrual police of Nicolae Ceausescu, who said, I want more Romanians born, the terrible communist dictator of the 70s and 80s, And so families were told not to use birth control and have more children, but they were too poor to look after the children, so they disowned the children. They were putting the state orphans. You remember when those state orphans were opened when Ceausescu was dethroned and and indeed assassinated or or judicially killed or whatever the right word is in 89? And these were children who had no contact 
no contact with parents or any caring adult. And they were automatons, they gibbered, they did, had no language, they had no emotion, they were unable to communicate, but they were capable of being redeemed by the mm. people who adopted them. And that is what we now call neurogenesis, because the parts of their brain that had never grown when they were two and a half grew when they were looked after and cared for. So there's your nature and nurture. It's both. There are, sadly, of course, some people who struggle to, or maybe indeed neurologically incapable of feeling empathy towards others. But they're in the minority. And if people, especially children, are given the right conditions to develop emotionally, most of them will, hopefully, be able to evolve a sense of the feelings of others. So for me, this is really one of the fundamental points that Peter's making. You know, as he, as he puts it, if we base our civil society, our society, on empathetic practices, then we give the best chance for people to flourish. And one of the main ways we can nurture and stimulate empathy, according to Peter, is through the arts. A crude summary of the arts would be it is the art of telling stories. And it doesn't matter whether you're talking about visual art, whether you're talking about music, which actually has a whole different interesting neuroscientific effect on us. But nevertheless, music or literature and films and plays and so on, it is about telling stories, human stories. And it's about stories that capture the human condition and allow us to practice our empathy. Now, the amazing thing about the arts, we're talking about fiction here. We're talking about things that didn't happen that aren't true. Of course, they have a deeper truth. So we have the ability as human beings to sit in an audience or sit with a book on our lap and read it. And we're reading something we know is not true and it moves us and engages us. And because we know that and because we've all read books and been to the theatre, we don't often stop and say, what sort of miracle is taking place here? That this is all untrue and yet it's evolving me. And at its best, it's evolving me not in people who look like me and talk like me, but people who don't look like me and don't talk like me. And the example right. I give often is a play that I'm so proud we, we funded, uh, the Arts Council funded at the Tricycle Theatre, my good friend Indu Rubassingham, who's a wonderful, wonderful director. She did this uh, play, Red Velvet, which Adrian Lester was in, and she discovered this story about an American actor of the 1820s, a black actor who was called Ira Aldridge. Ira Aldridge was a son of slaves. He was an actor, a classic actor. He learnt Shakespeare. He was travelling around Europe, jobbing actor, doing a part here, a part there. He's in London. Edmund Keane is playing Othello at Covent Garden Theatre. And Edmund Keane falls ill. And they need a replacement Othello. And it's 1823 or something. And they cast a black man in the part of Othello. Within days... His fellow cast members are outraged and want him out. The audience is outraged and want him out. And the critics want him out. They cannot accept a black man being <laughs> cast in the part of a black man. Right? And at the end of the play, which is extraordinary, there's a scene where you see Ira Aldridge putting on white makeup because the only part he could get in London was playing a white man. Now, so here I am, a white, middle-class, male, pale, stale, probably, bloke, sitting in the audience... <coughs> I have a meagre perception of the experience of black people in this country. A meagre perception. And when I watch that play, I begin to have 
just slightly better perception mm. of how it has been for black people in this country, last century, this century. And that is the art of empathy, and that's the arts and the narrative storytelling that enables me to begin to put myself in somebody else's shoes. I say begin because I'm not going to pretend I really had a profound understanding or ever will, perhaps, but just to begin that process. So before I opened up for questions from the audience, I wanted to ask Peter about his charter for empathy, which he outlines at the end of his book. And this charter is a really interesting set of suggestions for institutionalizing empathy and finding ways to embed it more deeply into our governments and our society. So I thought I'd better pull together at the end of the book, sort of what have I been talking about? What, what are the main points? Empathy in health, we've touched on. Empathy in education. Empathy in child rearing. Uh, we haven't talked about justice, so we no, haven't got yeah, time, but no. you may want to ask about it. Empathy in prisons and, and restorative justice and so right. on. So I pulled it together just to try and sort of say these are some of the things we could do if we wanted to as a society to improve society. Mm. So I've said the further mapping is a priority of the brain's empathy circuit because we're halfway through that and we should really be funding that science yep. and learning more about how we function. I've said a culture in which every young child gets the one-to-one nurture and stimulation they need to give them their own functioning empathy circuit. Do you know what percentage of people in prisons were in care? 25%. One in four people in prisons were in care. Our prisons are a disgrace, actually, but that's the terrible life chance that they had taken away from them because yeah. they were in care. An education which assesses and cultivates the emotional intelligence of every pupil. Good teachers do this instinctively, but everybody has a different level of emotional intelligence, and some kids need special help, and they should get it. Doctors, nurses and carers trained in and committed to empathetic practice. Sustained programmes that curb prejudice, and integrate different groups. Uh, public promotion of arts and popular culture that help us understand the perspectives of others. And again, we haven't talked about it, but I've said at the threshold of the artificial intelligence age, the reaffirmation of the empathy instinct and the supremacy of the human spirit. Mm. So I'm, I'm also keen to be empathetic towards all of you. <laughs> uh, we'd love your questions, comments, heckles. Feel free to stick up your hand. Yes. Thanks. It was really interesting. I guess my question's twofold. One is around this idea of empathy at scale, right? So the idea of, you know, we're able to have an empathetic experience with an individual, but at scale, it's very difficult. You know, one person's a story, million is a statistic, etc. How do we then as individuals interested in shifting society? How do we create that empathetic response at scale? And then you were talking about art and culture and how you can do that through art and culture. And my question was then, is that the role of art and culture, creating empathy at scale? And if so, what about communities that don't have access to kind of high art? I never went to the theatre when I was young because my parents didn't place value on it and, you know, we were all engineers. I only found out Othello was black last year right? <laughs> because I never did history. I never did geography. I never did any of those subjects. It was just a completely different world. And so yeah. are there ways that different communities create that empathy that happens in art and culture in different ways? That's or? such a good question. I mean, we have to accept, don't we, that we have this propensity for being able to identify individuals or small groups of people and empathise with them. We find it difficult to do it for large numbers of people. Not impossible, otherwise we wouldn't ever raise money with the refugee appeals on television. But the refugee appeals on television are about one person, aren't they? So it's from the individual, because that's how we're built, that you evoke sympathy for the majority. OK, lots of hands going up. Um, gentlemen... Just here. 
Uh, hi there. Earlier on, you briefly touched upon the power, if you will, of Google and Facebook and these companies in creating effectively this echo chamber where people are surrounded by people whose views agree exclusively with their own, which obviously is an ultimate detriment to empathy at a, at a massive scale. In addition to that, the algorithms that these companies are using are being used more and more in every sphere of life, in every area, as you mentioned, with sort of the computing revolution coming forward. What is the solution to overcoming these algorithms, you know, to allow empathy to continue to, to work, as it were, against the power of these companies who are enormous and have more power than perhaps any company has had since the early 20th century. Let's repeat, they do many beneficial things. I happen to have it in for them because they're monopolies that don't pay their taxes in the country they operated in, don't take responsibility as publishers for what they disseminate. And some of the impacts they sell in the advertising world, which I happen to be in in advertising, are fake. So there are things they do that I don't like very much, as I've just summarised. But uh, the answer to your question is, we are only 15 or 20 years into what is going to be the digital millennium. We barely understand these things. It's good we're beginning to think about them. They are going to have a profound effect on our societies, much more for our children and grandchildren. And if we are to have effective civil societies... We have massive amount to do in terms of education of everybody about how you use media and the media itself. I don't have a huge amount of confidence that that reform is going to come from Silicon Valley because I don't think people there have any responsibility or sense of society or any particular country either. Mm. Yes. Hi. I think there's an interesting question about what might be a solution to the problem of burnout in empathy and how we can view apathy and aggression or antisocial states in a different way to say, well, they're valid too. How can we pull that into a more empathetic zone? I.e. we all have a disgust or a dislike or a, an empathetic or an antagonistic approach to our opinions against something or for something. And that can be really great as well because that can push us into action. So I just wonder if you have some solutions or ideas around that. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, I think you're making a really good and profound point, uh, which is I don't think we should be ashamed of our instincts. We should be aware of them. And as I said to you earlier, I don't think we'll ever have a proper debate about racism until we accept that we all have racist instincts because we're born with them. And therefore, what are we going to do about them to behave in a more civilised way? But we can't have that debate because that's not acceptable. We, don't, we can't talk that way. Mm. And so um, my answer to your question would be the, the various aspects you're talking about, we should celebrate them in many ways, but work with them and understand them. And so is it wrong that people should disagree, even disagree strongly with each other? No, of course not. How do we ever get good ideas? I think what's really cool about Peter's book is that he doesn't for a second pretend that empathy's easy. We're all used to getting, you know, charity leaflets through the door or seeing adverts on TV. And, you know, there does come a point where, you know, you're only human if you wind up tuning out or feeling slightly burnt out. At the same time, Peter does rightly point to the fact that um, in literature, in art, uh, in the media... Sometimes all it takes to get around that burnout is a single image. That single image of a single person sometimes is what it takes to unlock the floodgates of empathy. You know, it's certainly something that artists and campaigners understand really well. 
And well, thank goodness for that, because there'd probably be a lot less charitable giving, a lot less volunteering, a lot less empathy if those images weren't so prominently displayed at times in response to terrible things happening in the world. I think one of the themes of Creative Collisions is that there are great benefits from talking to, interacting with people from totally different worlds and fields. And, you know, I think empathy is implicit in that, the idea that there's value in someone else's perspective. But I think at the same time, it's worth acknowledging the limits of empathy. If it really was possible to put yourself in someone else's shoes perfectly and understand their perspective, there'd almost be no point talking to them because you'd sort of know, know where they were coming from already. One of the things I find just so fascinating about life is that it's always surprising people's different points of view. And so it's almost a good thing that, you know, we're only human and we're not perfect at being empathetic because that way there are endless, infinite surprises and possibilities whenever you talk to someone else. Peter's book really brings home the point that if we're more empathetic, we might be better at communicating and collaborating and you know, maybe even leading. Fundamentally, if I understand where you're coming from and you understand where I'm coming from, then there's a good chance we can solve problems for ourselves and for each other. So before we pull down the curtain on this series of Creative Collisions, I just wanted to say a big, big thank you for listening this far. And um, I hope you've really enjoyed listening to the show. We've really enjoyed making it. And um, please do rate us on iTunes. Um, it really helps, as does posting a review. And, you know, if you like the show enough to share it with other people, please do post on social media. My Twitter handle is at Silver. S-I-L-V-A. We'd love your feedback, love your ideas as we get ready, limber up for series two. So thank you very much. This podcast was brought to you by Second Home and Radio Wolfgang. I was the host, Rohan Silver, and the guest was Peter Bazalgette, author of The Empathy Instinct. This series is produced by Eli Block and Natalia Rodriguez, and the executive producer is Harry Watson. If you want to know more about Second Home, please go to secondhome.io.